0: You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. and Remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. Usually, Joanne and I try to watch Jeopardy every night after dinner. But this past Tuesday, I went to see Ray Davies. I mean, Dave Davies, I'm sorry. So I was going to a concert, and I get a text. And I've never seen this before in Jeopardy, and no one else has. A guy won $110,000 in one day. Now, that is that sets the record. And what's amazing about this is the guy bet $26,000 on Final Jeopardy when he only needed $4,400 to win. So if you're watching Jeopardy, just check this guy out because he's a beast. Mm -hmm. In in four days, he has $240,000, which is just insane. Insane. Anyway, we have a great show today. We We have a gentleman, as my friends who are in the business, say when it comes to his drumming, he's a beast. He plays for Alice Cooper. He, uh, he plays all over L.A. Let's give it up for Glenn Sobel. How you doing, Glenn? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. So uh, so do you watch Jeopardy? Well, I have. Probably not in a long time. All right. No, because it just amazed me. Anyway, uh, now, now you grew up in L.A., right? I'm an L.A. native. That's right. right but you don't find a lot of. Now... What made you get into drums? I know you started, I think, when you were around eleven. But was it? Did you? What? What, what age did you know you wanted to become a drummer? You mean like professionally? Or just no? What? What made you pick up the sticks?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, in some ways, it's such a typical story. I was really, I liked Rush. I loved Rush. That was before I was a drummer and Zeppelin. I was getting really into those, I have the live records, uh, Exit Stage Left from Rush, and then Song Remains the Same by Zeppelin, they both have drum solos, so I got really into the idea of drums, and the guy across the street, the older kid, was a drummer, I'd hear him practicing, he was cool,
0: so that's what made me want to maybe be a drummer. Now, what did your parents think when you told them you wanted to start drumming, because I know my brother was a drummer, and it was... It was always loud. We had to end up putting them in the basement because he
1: was oh, they, he, the ideas. they just absolutely loved it. No, no. They were not they were not totally into it at first. I mean, I maybe I should say they realized how much noise it was gonna be when I got drums. <laughs> and then it's like, Wow, that is loud. I guess people don't realize until they hear it in the house. But then the neighbors too, they weren't loving it but that's like every drummer, right? They're, they're going to drive the neighbors crazy and their parents. And, no, but my parents were supportive of it. They, they definitely were. They saw I was into it and taking lessons, and I was in the beginning band class in middle school, and it just went from there.
0: Now, when did you start to know you were getting good and you, were, you, know, you had something special? Because you know a lot of us play instruments when we're young. Me, I tried to play guitar. I sucked. I tried, tried, to, play the tr- tried to play the trombone sucked but you know some kids you could just tell were special and had a gift was that you did you sit there and feel that you had a gift and did people think you had a gift well not right away of course um I
1: felt like I was really getting somewhere maybe it was sometime in high school you know the guys in my drum line I still talk with most of them we're all really good friends they said that Like I had a a really fast paradiddle in ninth grade when they were kind of auditioning me and they still talk about that to this day, how they asked about rudiments. They said, okay, how about a paradiddle? I played that. And secretly inside they're all going, whoa, this kid's got a crazy paradiddle, you know, and double stroke and whatever. And I didn't even really realize that at the time. Maybe that's good, but I got put on snare drum and marching band right away. And I, I improved a lot that year. But probably didn't realize that I was doing well yet. And again, maybe that's a good thing. You don't want to think that you're you're, you're good or great. You just want to keep working. You're always striving to the next thing, and the next level. So maybe 11th grade, I started getting more into jazz fusion and really digging into the 70s, 80s fusion scenes.
0: Maybe then I started to feel like I was getting somewhere. Well, it's funny because you mentioned the snare drum. And my brother was in a high school marching band and our band Cherry Hillis, was big I mean they used to play the uh, Miss America Parade they flew to you know Switzerland but if you were a snare drum like in the percussion section that was the shit like that's like it was like drum major and then for the band and then the cool next coolest person was the snare drummer. if you played it as a freshman that must have said something about your talent I, I didn't realize that either yeah I guess a lot of
1: freshmen normally might be put on bass drum which is great or cymbals or something like that. But yeah, I got snare drum right away. And I, I remember the songs that we were doing back then. I was looking at the music, the sheet music for this, going, Whoa, that's just a lot of notes. And there were six tuplets with mixed accents. I had never done that before. I kinda had to get up to speed quick and the uh hang on, that's my phone. I uh I had to I had to get up to, to speed really quick. And the drumline instructor definitely helped, of course, and then a couple of the guys in the drumline helped as
0: far as reading and figuring out these things. Now, you're living in L.A., and there's a, there's a music scene. So when you're a senior in high school and it's coming towards the end of your senior year, what were your plans? What did you decide to do, and what did you do when you got out of high school?
1: I, I went to college. I went to Cal State Northridge for a good while. I knew that by, I think it was by senior year, I knew that I probably wanted to go for doing this professionally, drumming. It it was after I went to my first NAMM show, which was senior year of high school. I was able to get in with my buddy Mike, who had a connection at Regal Tip, actually. Oh, there's the phone again. So... Anyways, uh, yeah, that's just hanging with all the, the drummers and seeing what it was like with the com- camaraderie and meeting some players that I thought I'd never meet. I just said, "Wow, this is all great. I love every bit of this. I think I want to do this for real, not just do it as as a hobby or a side thing, as a semi pro. I want to do this." Who am I kidding? Right?
0: Right. Now, so now, now, who were some of these guys you met? Like, who were some of the drummers that you admired when you were younger, like or not younger, oh. but in high school? so many i mean i I started like i said because of neil pert
1: john Bonham, but then it grew into so much more than that there was all the rock players alex van halen of course uh, a big a big uh influence and from there got into the progressive stuff phil collins of course genesis and uh bill bruford the stuff he did of course the band yes uk terry bozio got way into that, and then the jazz fusion stuff. The first fusion record I ever bought was Romantic Warrior by Return to Forever. That was like a game changer. Lenny White. Insane. And then got the Billy Cobham stuff, Ma Vision Orchestra, Birds of Fire, another game-changing record, and then the Cobham solo stuff. Got into the LA stuff, the LA fusion stuff with Vinny, Vinny Koliuta. And it just kind of grows from there. It keeps going and going. You, You figure out new guys you got to check out go to the used record store look at the back of the records back then see who plays on this and take a chance you didn't have something like youtube or spotify back then to really see or hear a record you couldn't preview it you just had to take your
0: chance and buy it and take it home and see if it's worthy wasn't it worth? wasn't it the worst when you, when you bought that album because you thought it was going to be really good and there was like two songs and the rest of it sucked. It was like such the worst feeling, because you're right, you couldn't check it out, but it was like you get home and you'd be waiting. It's like when you go to a bad movie and yeah. you don't want to leave because you paid the money, but then you're so disappointed.
1: Yeah, or maybe it was like a fusion artist known for excellent musicianship, but this record, they're doing a real commercial melodic thing <laughs> where there's nothing interesting going on. That would happen sometimes too, you know? It's like, hey, we're not interested in hearing you try to appeal to housewives here. We just want to hear some some ripping musicianship, right?
0: Yeah. So now, so you're getting into music. Now, how do you start to become a pro? How do you focus? And did you want to play fusion? Did you want to do session mute work? What did you do when you're hitting the streets, basically, and going for it? Well, I wanted to do it all, it seemed. But
1: I was in a band in high school. I was in a rock band. And I'm so glad for that experience. And those guys, most of those guys are my best friends to this day. And we were playing originals, but we started playing backyard parties in senior year of high school. Another very typical story. But we'd play covers at backyard parties. Motley Crue covers, Van Halen, whatever we liked. And we would mix in originals. And then we started playing clubs. That was the first band I played a club on the Sunset Strip with was my first band grateful for that experience is because I was becoming such a, a jazz snob purist in some ways. And that band steered me back towards rock and made me go, oh yeah, this is fun. This is what it's about. You know, and Guns N' Roses was out with their first record and they were listening to that all the time. And I thought, yeah, this is truly a great record. And they got me back into Van Halen. And, you know, I, I probably shied away from a lot of that for maybe a year or close to
0: it. So I started out playing clubs with that band. Now, it was, it was L.A. at the time. What were some of the clubs? Was, were you playing the Troubadour? Were you playing the Whiskey or the Coconut Teaser? Where were you guys playing? We played Gazares. That was okay. the first club I ever played. And that place is legendary. So, I mean, looking back, that must be, knowing that that was your first gig at a club, that must be a great feeling huh. because Gazares, every movie you see about the Sunset Strip, they mention Gazares. Yeah, I was 17,
1: and it was the first time I played on a mic'd-up set of drums, one of those moments, you know, where you kind of see the light. It's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It was soundcheck, and they had us just run a quick song, and and I had never played on a drum set that sounded that way, that was amplified, and that was just an amazing little moment. And we'd, we'd play clubs here and there. You couldn't play that often in L.A. You know, you were lucky if you did one every two or three months, Otherwise, you were just rehearsing most of the time, but um, yeah, so there was that, and then there would be occasional little cover gigs with other people around town, acoustic cover gigs where the drums have to be kind of not too loud, but I knew I wanted to get more into it as far as, as diversifying and, and getting into some different styles, and I, I met Greg Bissonette. I just happened to meet him, and I started taking lessons with him.
0: Now, did you feel yourself growing as a drummer? Sure, yeah. I was still always buying
1: records, going to clinics. I grew up in L.A., so I was lucky. There was always something going on in the way of drum events, clinics, at the Guitar Center or just at other drum shops that were in town. There were big drum events at Guitar Center Hollywood. I remember they had the Mark Craney drum benefit way back. Mark Craney became a good friend and used to jam with him at this this club he, he played with Gio Vanelli back in the day the brother to brother record and Jethro Tull Tower of Power we unfortunately lost him a few years ago but they had a benefit for him he, he had health problems the health challenges big benefit Guitar Center Hollywood there was Vinnie and the Peace brothers and Bozio Steve Smith Greg Bissonette Ricky Lawson all these guys played it was like a big drum festival uh, at the, the back parking
0: lot of Guitar Center Hollywood. That kind of thing would go on all the time in LA. It was crazy. Well, it's funny, you know, and I, I've gotten to know a lot of drummers. We have a mutual friend, Rich Redman, and uh, Rich has got me a lot, introduced me to a lot of drummers. And it's weird, you know, because I interview a lot of musicians, and drummers seem to have this camaraderie. I don't know, and you're always got guy, you're always gigging. I mean, it's funny. You guys have this crazy. You know, schedule. All of you do a bunch of different stuff, but you know, why do you think that you guys have such a camaraderie? Is it because everyone, you know, in the past, drummers have gotten you know from Spinal Tap, they've gotten you know the bad rap and yeah. things like that. I mean, what makes you guys have a camaraderie? And you guys are so t- you seem like such a tight knit community.
1: Well, you know, I, I think all drummers laugh at the Spinal Tap thing too. If you can't laugh at yourself, then you just you can't. You don't have a sense of humor, but. Yeah, that's always been a great question. Why is it drummers always get together and have lunches and hang with each other? What's with you guys, you know? And I I don't know if I've quite put my finger on that, but I don't know. Sometimes guitar players, and I'm generalizing, of course, but maybe they're more inclined to be stylists over chameleons. That's not to say a guitar player can't be diverse in their gigs and their resume, but Drummers, whether or not they actually play different gigs and styles, they're interested to hear it, and they want to see up close what does this guy do on this gig, and how does he do it, and everybody kind of has a mutual appreciation of what each other does, and no one drummer is going to do everything, so realizing that, you just want to really see what makes each other tick, and you just like to talk about it. Drummers are the least likely in a band to be involved in the songwriting side of things. We're more likely journeymen. We're going from gig to gig. And so maybe that has something to do with it. I
0: don't know. Well, you know, it's funny. I always consider, like, a drummer and a bassist. I'm a big baseball fan. I always consider them the middle of the infield. Because you know what? If you don't have a second baseman or a shortstop, every ball's a hit. And I always think that drummer and bass keep the band together. But you're right. They're in the background. I remember watching old Stones videos. And they'd every once in a while, they'd, they'd pan on Charlie Watt and Bill Wyman just looking at each other. But you knew they were such an integral part of the group.
1: Sure. Yeah, it depends on the band, but yeah, sure,
0: that's mostly the case, sure. Now, at Nivea, when you were 19, you got a job with Tony McAlpine?
1: Yeah, I was 20, I believe, yeah. At 21, I got that gig, and that was something Greg Bissonette had recommended me for. I was taking lessons from him for about a year and a half, and I did a drums demo where I had to go into the studio and a guy that played both guitar and bass and record a bunch of mini songs in different styles and I would hand out that cassette you had to have it duplicated on cassette that was social networking back then yeah. basically and um, no but I'd been taking lessons with Greg and he was into you know my improvement, the rate of improvement I gave him this cassette and he had never heard me play in a group setting before a recording or gig or anything I gave him that and literally I think days later he called me saying, hey, have you ever heard of Tony McAlpine? I said, oh, of course I have. I have that first record of his with Steve Smith. He said, well, start learning the tunes. I just gave your number to his manager. And that's how that happened. That was the first pro gig.
0: So I, I owe Greg big time. That wasn't the only thing he's ever recommended me for. Well, you know, it's... Go <laughs> it, it, okay. ahead. I was just going to say, that was just a really cool...
1: He did me a solid, you know, and that's, that's a rare thing, too, sometimes in this business.
0: Well, I was going to say, also, it must have been pretty amazing for you that you get to work with Tony McAlpine which a lot of people don't know of him but he's he's so respected in the musical community and as you know your first professional gig you must sit there and think hey you know what I'm doing something right
1: yeah well I wanted to make sure and get the gig and and I did it wasn't some huge audition I think they were just having people recommend guys here and there it wasn't like an audition where there's 20 drummers lined up in a hallway nobody likes that but yeah, actually, the first time I jammed with Tony, I, I mentioned Return to Forever earlier, Romantic Warrior. Tony started noodling on guitar, playing a part from one of those songs. He, he was really into that record, Al Di Miola on guitar. And I started playing along. And he went, whoa, you know that song? That's cool, man. And we started jamming a little piece of this one tune, and that helped get me in there, you know? And, and yeah, I got that gig. It was supposed to be a band with a singer. But it never really materialized. It didn't happen. But we did end up doing an instrumental record, which was my first real record I ever did.
0: So you do that, and that's a a big, as my mom would say, feather in your cap. Now where do you go? Because, as you said, you're drummers. You're always looking for the next job unless you become a member of the band. You know, it's uh, where do you go from there? What is your target? You know, because that's more, you know, it's not rock. It's more, you know as you would say, snot snobby, but, you know, as you said, you, people thought you were, you know, you said you were feeling jazz snobby and so stuff like that. Yeah. Where do you, where do you go? What, what's your direction after you get off that album? Because you must be on a high because you played on this album. Then you also think, I gotta go find a gig.
1: Yeah, it was a weird time. That record, and that whole thing, when I was in that, on that gig, that was when grunge had pretty much erased the slate for rock and definitely for shred guitar that record came out in 93 which many people would say was the height of, of the whole grunge alternative thing so there wasn't any real touring to do with Tony he was doing guitar clinics I remember but to get out on the road it just wasn't it wasn't feasible at that time we did some local things we did NAM shows and a couple of benefit gigs around town that had you know a, a, a lineup of many many guitar players but yeah, it was like okay. I want to play. I want to get out. I want to tour. I want to do something. And so I, I was doing whatever I could to get that word out, playing local gigs, and then of course playing with Tony. It led to other gigs in a similar genre. The next gig was Chris Impeleteri. uh another amazing guitar player, plays like in a similar genre, but they're all they're all different. Chris had always had a singer in his band. It wasn't instrumental, so. His group was on MTV a bit in 88, I guess, but of of course this was now mid-90s. It just wasn't a thing for that to be popular in the the United States, but Chris did have a strong foothold foothold in Japan, so I ended up going there a lot with that group called Impelletary. That was my first real tour in Japan, and I had already been there once before that with Musicians Institute, because I did start teaching there after starting to play with Tony, but yeah, it was a weird time. If you were coming off of the playing a gig like Tony Metal Fusion Instrumental, it just wasn't happening in LA
0: at the time. Well, I read on your website and as people's websites glensobel.com and it's a uh, one end uh, that it said you you know how to learn music and you can learn a band's catalog very quick. What do you attest that to? how did you get that skill? Well, absolutely reading music. I
1: started When when I was in seventh grade, I started reading basic stuff. I didn't even get a drum set for maybe a year and a half after I started practicing and playing drums. It took time. I was on a pad learning out of the basic books in the the beginning music class in middle school. And then finally I got with a teacher. We were working out of Ted Reed's Syncopation and the Buddy Rich Rudiment book and Colin Bailey's book. So I really... Felt like there was a lot of reading in my background. Then in high school, of course, I said marching band. There was orchestra, which seemed boring at the time in some ways because you'd like sit there and wait 45 bars till one hit of a triangle, you know. But that was great because it introduced me to the idea of, you know, mixed time signatures and hearing an orchestra play and having to count bars. There was that. There was playing in the high school musicals. I did everything I could, jazz band in high school. So all that provided a real solid foundation with the reading. And then I saw a teacher like Greg Bissonette. I saw how he would make cheat sheets of songs. That was part of what he showed us in, in lessons, me and the students that were taking lessons from him. And I just kind of put it all together and figured out, well, this is what professional drummers do. You make a roadmap of the song so you can kind of just
0: have a thing to refer to when you're rehearsing it. Now, you said you taught at the Musicians Institute. Um, what was it like for you to be a teacher? Because it seems like you had a good teacher, and Greg, and, and did it make you want to impart your knowledge and what you learned from him to your students?
1: Sure, of course. Absolutely. Um, you know, I guess I'm, I was the rock guy that had the educational background, which is not... That common sometimes the rock guys, they're purely self-taught, which is not a bad thing. There's amazing self-taught players out there, but I guess that was my angle in a way.
0: Now, you were looking at the different, you know, as you said, you were teaching, you were looking for different gigs. When were you in a band, a band signed to a label here for your first time? Was that Beautiful Creatures, or did it happen before then? That was the first time for a major label, but before that... um
1: There were other bands that had label deals. There was a band I joined that had just exited a label deal with Giant Records and got picked up by an indie. That was actually a band I was in with Tommy Hendrickson called P.O.L. Tommy is one of the guitar players I play with in the Alice Cooper Band and the Hollywood Vampires. He's the whole reason I got in that circle of people to begin with. But, yeah, that was... That was a band with a deal, and there was a band I did with Sendog from Cypress Hill that had a deal on an indie that had some money, but it just didn't have any ultimate success. But they're all learning experiences, all of them. And then there was finally Beautiful Creatures, which in 2001 put out a record on Warner Brothers that I was a part of.
0: Now, what, do you, what goes through your mind? You know, you said some of these weren't a success. Do you get frustrated because, you know, you you're thinking you're a part of something now? You know, you're thinking, hey, if this record hits or this works... I'm going to sit there. I got a gig. I don't have to go looking. What goes through your mind when it doesn't work and then you have to sit there and you're basically, you're not starting over because you're known in the business, but it has to be a disappointment. How do you keep on the horse and keep going forward? Well, sure, it's a disappointment, especially something that's
1: on the major label, because now you're sitting in Warner Brothers Records, and you're talking to the president of the label, and they've got all the platinum records on the wall from all their artists of the last 40 years, and it's like, wow, we're really in the big leagues now, and they're talking all this great stuff. You guys are going to be huge. You're going to be great, and they got producers coming to visit your rehearsal studio, watch you play, the biggest producers in the business, and actually... We had some of the biggest managers in the business coming to watch us play because the band was between managers when I joined. And that was an education in itself. That was Music Business 101, having been through that label deal and being thrown into that situation. It didn't have success, of course it was a disappointment, because the record, it's your baby, you know, and you go on tour, you build up a bit of a fan base before the record's even out, there's people that love what you do, because we were on the OzFest tour, and so we had a lot of people that were dying to come see us again when we came back through town. And then the air gets let out of all the tires. It's over, you know, a new CEO came in, very typical story. He pulled the plug on the whole thing because he had his idea about what acts he wanted to bring into the label. So this new CEO, he shook our hand and then he dropped us from the label and it's just, it's over. And there wasn't enough of an internet. There was no social media back then to really keep momentum going. Although we tried, you know, you try to get a new deal, but it's looked at as damaged goods in, in many ways. When you're an artist that gets dropped from somebody like Warner Brothers, you have to strike while the iron's hot and get something out quick. But the band just didn't have it. We didn't have it in us collectively to get a bunch of new songs together and get some demos out to prospective new labels. It just wasn't gonna happen. It took too long and there was enough time put into that. And I figured, okay, it's time to figure out the next move
0: now, do you think you you mentioned the internet? Do you think your career would have had the longevity it had if there was internet back then, where so many people become a flash in a pan? People they show up for one song, and they disappear. It happens a lot. Do you think that that struggle that you guys had, and you had to, you just couldn't, you know, look on the internet to find a drumming gig? Yeah, they get you know. a drum magazine or something from, you know, whatever. Do you think that you would have had the longevity if you were to come out at this time now as a new drummer and learning the ropes? Yeah, everybody always wonders that about themselves. Was I born in the right
1: time? There's people now that think, oh, if it was only 20, 25 years ago, I'd be rich and famous because, you know, a label would just sign me and they'd pay for everything and I'd be huge and I'd be on MTV because they actually used to play videos. I mean, it's never been easy for anybody now anybody can be potentially seen by the world but that's the problem anybody so there's a high level of noise out there and there's no no more barrier of entry you can record a song and put it right up alongside led zeppelin at the itunes store or spotify and so people wonder you know how would it have been back in the 80s 90s if I was trying to get a gig versus now, I don't know if there's really an answer to that. People think it was easy or great way back in the day. I don't know about that. I think the internet, it has led to opportunities for so many people that never would have had it to begin with because they wouldn't have been seen, discovered, whatever. If, if your name gets thrown in the hat for a gig back in the day, someone would say, well, okay, I've never heard of that guy I'm going to find someone I've heard of. Now, if your name gets recommended for a gig and the particular artist doesn't know you, they can take their phone out of their pocket and look you up right on the spot. It's actually pretty amazing.
0: Now, through your career, you played with a bunch of different people. How did you know the guys from D'Amato?
1: Oh, D'Amato, that was was a short-lived gig. That was a guy, I believe the bass player had uh, brought me into that. I had done a gig or two with him. And he brought me in. That was a guy around town trying to get a, a bigger thing going with a label
0: deal. And I was a hired drummer on that situation. No, because I, I, I was friends. I'm, I know Anthony and I, I used to have beers oh. with Jason. So that's why it's. I, I knew you were with them because Jason had
1: mentioned it once. Yeah, Jason on guitar. I
0: haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, great guys. He moved back to uh, Milwaukee or wherever he's from. Oh, okay. So you're playing now... You end up also playing in two thousand and ten. You got end up with Vasco Rossi, who is a big Italian star. How did that happen? And what was that like to play with someone who was so liked? And just you know, there'd be a good crowd.
1: Yeah, that was that was nuts. There's no other way to put that. Uh, the short, if I could try to make this as short as I can, it's just one of those things where you just never know who you're going to meet on a gig, even a random cover gig which I was doing, uh, I'm pretty good with dates of what when things happened for me. So it was 2007, and I was playing this random cover gig at this sports bar, just having fun, playing, and this cover band was pretty cool. It was, it was Jason Hook on guitar, who's in Five Finger Death Punch now. I've been in at least a couple of bands with him. It was Chuck Wright on bass, who people know from Quiet Riot, and it was David Victor on vocals and guitar who ended up playing with Brad, or um, with Tom Schultz in Boston. So it was a cool band. We're having fun at this tiny sports bar. And in walks this one engineer that had mixed a record I did. And with that engineer was this Italian producer, Saverio, that I met. And the guy, Saverio, said, hey, you sound great. Uh, I think... If you're interested, I've got some recording I'm doing in a couple weeks. Can I get your number? And so I did go to his home studio a couple weeks after that, recorded whatever I did. And he had it all mapped out in Pro Tools, the song that we were doing. And I made a cheat sheet of the song right on the spot. And then we'd figure out what kick snare patterns worked and transitional fills. And he'd make suggestions and I'd make the changes and done. It was all done quick. I was out of there, and I didn't talk to him too much over the next three years, but one night in September of 2010, he calls me up asking if I can get on a plane to Rome in three days because Vasco Rossi's drummer had an injury, and that was a drummer named Matt Log. Matt is an amazing player. He's on a ton of hit records. If you don't know his name, you have definitely heard his drumming. And Severio said, yeah, there's this huge Italian artist And, uh, you know, his drummer has a problem. He's got to miss at least the first week. And I just want to know if you can do it. And I I said, I I said, are you talking about Vasco Rossi by any chance? He goes, yeah, you know Vasco. And I had heard of him because he has always had American drummers. He's had Greg Bissonette and Vinny live. He's had Jonathan Moffat, Dean Castronova, Mike Baird, Kenny Aronoff. So I definitely heard of him. I didn't know how big he really was. And... I said yes, of course, and it was a thing where Greg Bissonnette was asked if he could do it because he had played with Vasco on the records. When you need a sub, the top of the list is always guys that have done the gig previously. If they're still in good standing with the gig, they're going to maybe get a call. So Greg was not available. I think he was playing with Ringo, but Saverio asked Greg. He said, yeah, do you know Glenn Sobel? I'm, I'm thinking of calling him, and Greg said, yeah, call Glenn. He'd be perfect for this. So Greg, again, putting in a good word for me. And I ended up staying up two days straight, charting out the live set. I had a recording of that, a board mix, and it was, it was a lot of work, but I said, I am gonna come in the first day, I'm gonna know everything. I know that the pressure's on, they're worried, the shows are sold out, this is my time to make sure, to let them know they made the right decision. And so, flew all the way to Rome, and then from there to Sardinia, the island, where the first show was, and we were able to rehearse a couple of days, and the first day, the pressure's on, but I just wanted to get to playing. And we played through the first two songs that were kind of attached together. And then everybody kind of applauded after that. It was this huge sigh of relief. Like, great, this guy did his homework. Because they didn't know me. It was a Hail Mary on the part of the producer. But I ended up covering the last five weeks of that tour. And now, it was a pretty crazy
0: experience. Now, what? how does that make you grow as a drummer? Because you're playing, as you said, five weeks into... In big venues, I'm guessing, you know, 30,000, 40,000. I mean, yeah,
1: the, wh- the first show was 40,000 people outdoors in Sardinia, and I had to have the music stand up there. And the, the drum tech had to use clothespins to hold the pages down on the, <laughs> on the, because the wind was blowing. Yeah, it was all these things that are very distracting. But, yeah, it was, it was pretty nuts in many ways. But that's what it was. It, it's an arena and stadium kind of gig.
0: Now, you play with him. Now, when did your career start with Alice? And it's funny because, you know, there's a special that always plays on Access, and that's Alice Live from somewhere, and you have a killer, killer drum solo in that, which everyone loves a drum solo. Um, when did you start? That How be, did you meet uh, Alice, and when did you start?
1: Might, I'm wondering which – that might be the thing on Access they showed from Austin City Limits, possibly –
0: it's a it's a full concert. It's like an hour. They have like an hour, an hour and a half, and you have a you. It's have a kick ass drum solo. Yeah, I, th- I think that's yeah. People have said they've
1: seen that one a lot. I don't have access TV, so um, I've never seen it myself. But if it's the one with the green drum set, yeah, that's the one. But yeah, Alice came not too long after Vasco. Vasco that tour wrapped up in November of twenty eleven. And I got called about Alice, I think it was, I think it was in January, February of 2011. Yeah, Vasco wrapped up November 2010, and I got called about Alice, I think in February of 2011. It's just, that was just a coincidence. It wasn't like one led to the other, but that's, that was the
0: timeline of that. So he called you, now did you have to go on an audition, and what was the situation you were looking at? Well, no, Alice... I I did not meet Alice till the first day of
1: rehearsal, which is crazy, but it's not unheard of. No, I got a call from Tommy Henriksen, my buddy that I was in a band with back in the mid-late 90s, who he was fronting that band and playing bass. Well, Tommy has reinvented himself over and over and over. He had moved to Nashville for a while, and he started working under producer Bob Ezrin. And so in 2010... In January, February 2010, Tommy had brought me on to a recording session in Nashville that was an Alice Cooper session. It was us remaking note for note a few of Alice's early hits like School's Out, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Welcome to My Nightmare, Elected, and Alice was re-singing these songs, and the question is always why. Why do you do that? Well, if you ever hear any of these songs in a a movie, commercial or video game, that's us. That's our re-recorded version of this. That way the artists and management own the masters. You don't have to deal with an old record label that gets a piece of that licensing fee. They license the use of the song, a sync fee, whatever. Now the artist owns it, and there is no label to deal with. And it's supposed to fool people into thinking they're hearing like a remastered version of the original. So again, this is where reading came in handy. I couldn't have done this without reading. I had to make note-for-note transcriptions of Neil Smith's drum parts. That's the original Alice drummer. And then there's Whitey Glenn that was on Welcome to My Nightmare, because Alice was solo by then. And Tommy had recommended me for this session. He put his faith in me that I would be able to come in prepared and be able to mimic the sound and style of these drummers. And Bob Ezra didn't know me, but Tommy was working as his right hand guy. And it went well enough to where a year later, Bob had suggested me for the live gig because they were asking Bob to produce the Alice show this time. And so he wanted to bring in Tommy on guitar and he suggested bringing in me, and he brought in Steve Hunter as well, who played on a lot of those Alice early hits, as well as Peter Gabriel and uh, Tracy Chapman, Lou Reed. It was a really cool band when we started out. But I was the guy that didn't know Alice. So Tommy calls me. Uh, he wakes me up in L.A. a couple hours earlier here. And he says, hey, I'm hanging here with Mr. Cooper, and you know we're talking about bringing you into the gig. I just showed him some YouTube of you playing, because apparently Alice said when my name came up apparently Coop said well yeah I heard him I sang over his tracks obviously he gets the vibe of the music but I have to see him my drummer has to be flashy and so I guess Tommy knew what to look up on YouTube and showed him something of me playing a solo or I don't know what and based on that and Tommy saying I'm a good guy I'm not crazy whatever Alice said all right yeah that's the guy and Tommy called me and said do you want to do this I said, yeah, man, let's do it. He goes, all right, you're in. Click. It was basically that,
0: wow. you know? <laughs> so now you got the gig, and as you said, you know, I saw um, Alice at the Hollywood Bowl uh, open for Motley Crue, and then there was also the uh, the Raskins open, that, that show. Yeah. And And um, you get this gig, and now Alice is such a showman, and he's still amazing. As a drummer... Do you feel the pressure because he said he wants someone flashy? And you're going into now what it's more of almost like a theatrical production because he is such a command of his audience and he has fans who adore him. As a drummer, how do you did it just come easy to you to learn how to hold the focus on you when it's not on Alice? Um, well
1: I'd always been into Doing that kind of thing where it's warranted. You know, that's something I always, always talk about with clinics or private lessons about doing the showmanship where it fits. But yeah, I was in marching band like we were talking about. And we would learn a lot of different stick tricks in that. And I would always be picking the brain of different drum corps guys. So I got into it. So it wasn't like I had to... Work on it specifically for that gig. Of course, you play a gig, you figure out new things because you're in a new situation and it leads to different ideas, whether it's drumming or whatever. But yeah, it, it's something that, that came naturally and you just got to know where, where it works.
0: Now, at what point did they start having you do drum solos? Is that from right from the get go or did that take a little while till Alice got the trust in you?
1: Uh, It was pretty much from the beginning There's a song that we did on the first tour It's considered like the Holy Grail for Alice Cooper fans It's Halo of Flies, that's the song And this is like the 8 minute epic That the original Alice Cooper band did back in the day It's kind of them saying Hey, we could be progressive and cool and weird too Check this out And it's this big 8 minute song That's It's like 3 or 4 songs in one With tempo changes and interesting weird parts A long instrumental section And there's a drum solo in that song But it's a very, like, how should I say? It's a very just written out, very just like melodic drum solo. It's not flashy. It's just something that becomes more hypnotic. And so I transcribed every note of that solo. I wanted to come in that first day of rehearsal completely prepared on everything. So yeah, I played that solo. But of course, I'm thinking, no, I want to do my own thing with this. And I had seen... I think Eric Singer had done his own thing with that solo at one point. And so that's what I was aiming for. And maybe a couple weeks in or not even, that's when I got the green
0: light to go ahead and do my own thing with that solo. So it was pretty early. Now you get And to- it's over and by the way, the solo, it's over a bass vamp. There is bass guitar playing, so
1: it's the same tempo and feel throughout. So that became the challenge. How do I make it work and do something that is interesting for the audience?
0: And interesting for me, but keeps it within that tempo and feel. It's a challenge. Now, when you're doing and you're creating this drum solo and you're transcribing and all this stuff, is it? Do you know when it's right? Is do you have an error process? I'm sure you practice it because you seem like a guy who's reads the music, practices probably a lot. Do you practice it until you get it right? I mean, is it or do you feel it the first time and go, "This is where it's going." Well, beyond on tour, there's not a lot of opportunity to actually practice. I remember, I think the
1: first night I did it was in Argentina. I think we were playing. And I just, I did what I knew would fit and work. And it went, it was, it was cool, you know? And then you just build from there and it evolves. You try things. That's one thing YouTube is good for. You can at least watch video from the audience perspective and you're hearing it, you're seeing it, you're seeing what works. So that's, that's one thing about being on tour. You can't always just practice by yourself. You can't do it at soundcheck. You know, sometimes we skip that all together. But yeah, it was about how do I construct this to where it has a beginning, middle, and, end, and it ends on a big climax, and then we finish out the rest of the song. I started out by playing the original solo. That's what I would do. I would play a bit of that, paying homage to Neil Smith, and give people enough to recognize that I'm playing that original solo and then go off into my own thing.
0: Now, you're playing with him on the road. How long do you really feel like you're in sync with the band? And of course, you were in sync with the band because you've been with them for a long time. But how long did you feel like, okay, man, I'm at home behind these drums. This, this is my domain. I'm just going to ride this. Yeah, how long does it
1: take until you feel that on a gig? That's a good question. I can't say there was any one gig where all of a sudden that occurred to me. It's just this growing process. We did a couple weeks of rehearsal when we were getting out on that first tour that I was a part of. And a lot of that is for the the props and the gags, the timing, you know, the actual time put into music. It's a lot less because there's a lot of things in the production of the show that we got to focus on. So it wasn't as much as I wanted. But again, the show, it evolves. And the things that help to really to really, just feel like things are in the groove would be like starting songs with click tracks, getting the right tempo, or even playing a song to a click most of the way or all the way through, which I do all the time on that gig. Now, certain songs, not all of them, but you figure out things that help you get acclimated a lot faster.
0: It's like adapting. you got to be able to adapt quick. So after the first tour with Alice... Did you know you were coming back? How does that work? I mean, I know I know a lot of actors who, you know, they never know if their series is getting picked up. They don't know what's <laughs> going on, and they go, shit, you know. We, it looked like it had great ratings, and just like you said with a record label, a, a a guy comes in and runs a network and goes, hey, you know what, we're done with that job. We're done with that show. When did you know you were getting on for the next tour? And what was, I mean, Was did you know when you were done that first tour of them that you would be back?
1: Yeah, things were going, things were going well, and Alice's lineups, he has not switched out players a lot. He's had a lot of players in his entire career, absolutely. There's been a lot of different lineups, but they all they all last a good while. Unless somebody leaves for some reason or, or unless there's some crazy extreme situation where someone was fired for some reason, it's, ha- it's happened on every gig. But at the time I was coming in, the bass player, Chuck Garrick, he had been in for – oh, I don't know, nine or ten years, and the guitarist, Damon Johnson, he had been in for a good while, everybody had been in for a while, and then us new guys, you know, we had to, of course, get up to speed, but it was all going well in the reviews, and they'd start talking about the next leg of tour, about the details of that, and you you start to gather, like, yeah, this is all happening again with everything the same you know, the next year they start talking about the festivals that are that are getting booked
0: for next year. They don't discuss that with people that aren't coming back. Now when you've you've played all over the world with him and it's funny, I've heard, you know, people say, you know, in Buenos Aires and down around there the the musician the people are just crazy for music. I've heard in Asia and Japan, like before there was even internet, people the these kids would know that the band was coming and the train stations would be packed. Where have you felt that some of the most rowdiest and crowds are and some of the ones that just really love music, besides America? Oh, man, yeah. Like, definitely in South America.
1: A- anywhere down there, just about. Brazil, we've been to the most. But, yeah, they are rabid down there. And uh, definitely Moscow, Russia, a place like that. I mean, being there with Hollywood Vampires last year, that was crazy. We got Johnny Depp, who is staying in the same hotel as us and so every day there'd be all dozens of people at least out front of the hotel just hoping for a glimpse of johnny you know and we'd have to have this escape plan where his security guys would have to figure out how are we getting him out of the building and onto the bus it would be this whole thing every day and just really crazy great fans lots of countries in europe are like that south
0: america for sure and asia japan you know it can get crazy. Now you also filled in for Tommy Lee, I believe, in for yeah. five shows. How did that come about? And did you sit there and think, "Holy shit, this is going to be a challenge"? Because you drummers, you guys have a have a workout. I mean, you don't really see in many fat drummers, you know, because you guys are <laughs> you guys are working out. I mean, you know, I watch drummers, and it's like, you know. Guys who are getting older. I mean, Carmine Apice. You know, he's 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 not a young guy. Liberty DeVito, not a young guy, and they can still play. And it's physical. Did what did you sit there? Did you just sit there and go, "What am I getting in for?" Or was it something you were looking forward to? Well, it, it's both for sure.
1: It, it's definitely both. I, I wanted to approach it with respect. You know, you don't want to come into something like that when you're subbing last minute or subbing period. You don't want to say, well, that guy did this, but I'm going to do this, I'm going to do my thing. That's just treating it with disrespect, the whole gig. The best compliment you could get is that the band forgets you're there. And then they turn around and they say, oh yeah, we got a sub drummer. You want to make it, like in the case of Motley Crue, I wanted, wanted to do my best Tommy Lee impression on the drum set. Nobody sounds exactly like him, everybody's got their own thing, but that's how you want to approach it, and yeah physically it was a lot but let me tell you that was a tour where we were special guests alice cooper was on the tour we were doing about just about an hour-long set with all the trimmings the props and the drum solo and then there was the motley set which was about an hour 45. the motley set physically in many ways was easier than the alice set that's not taking anything away from motley's music it's just that alice doesn't talk between songs he doesn't break character, so it's one into the next into the next. And there's like one short guitar solo where there's a break. So yeah, stamina wise, you gotta be in shape for that. And then there's the Motley Crew set where, you know, three songs and Vince talks. Right? And then there's a few songs, there's more talking. And then there's a speech that Nikki Six would give where you talk about how the band met because this was their farewell tour so that speech could have been eight or ten minutes and i was stepping off of the riser just chilling back there going wow i forgot what it's like to have a break in the in the show right and then Mick mars would do a five minute guitar solo and that was just such a contrast to the alice set where it's just go 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 and it's energy For just about the whole set. But yeah, by the time we're into the end of the Motley Crue set, we're on Kickstart My Heart. Yeah, I was feeling it every night. You're pretty worn out. But the trick I realized definitely after the first night was between the two sets to not cool down, to stay warmed up. Because what I do after the show is like I'll put ice on my, my neck. That's what gets stiff the most. And to to cool down. But I did that the first night. That was the mistake. And then coming out with the Motley set a half hour later, starting on Girls, 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 it's like, oh, now I got to get warmed up again. So, and then there was a masseuse that came down a couple of times that week that they brought down for me to the venue to give the the deep tissue massage in the afternoon, which really loosens you up for the gig at night. And just getting enough food and sleep.
0: Now, now how long did it take you to learn Motley Crue's catalog. You said, you know, when you played for Vasco, you stayed up for, you know, two days. (laughs) How long did it take you? Well, I'll tell you, having done the Vasco gig
1: already, when the situation suddenly came up with Motley, part of me was saying, okay, I got this. I've done this. I've sub-last-minute on these big gigs. I could do this. It was a confidence factor, but the other half of me was going, Oh my God, you know, I can't train wreck Motley Crue in front of 15,000 people. That'd be just too crazy. I can't let that happen. So yeah, it was day of show. We were in Buffalo, New York and the production manager called me, the Motley Crue production manager, Robert called me in my hotel room. And I met the guy like back in the beautiful creatures days in 2001. He was a guitar tech for Marilyn Manson's crew. And I thought the guy was playing a joke on me, you know, but he assured me it was for real. And so I was on seven hours notice. I said, all right, get me to the venue, have someone pick me up, have someone get a music stand with a light attached to it and have Adam, that, that was their sound guy, I said, have Adam make me a board mix on a thumb drive. I need to sit in an office at the venue and chart out the show. And so that's what I did all day. And then I had to just go out and check the inner monitors for the Motley set. But we did not sound check. None of those guys showed up during the day. They were just doing their regular routine of showing up, I don't know, two, three hours before show and then going and doing the show. I didn't even see Tommy Lee that day until I was walking to the stage to play their set. No one was giving me any <laughs> no one was giving me any like guidance, right? And everything they were doing was on a click track, which is good. When you're subbing, there's no guesswork about getting the exact right tempo. Um, Everything with the light show is programmed with what the band is playing, so it's all synced up. There's this massive system they run, and there's a guy there that built the system and is there to run that system every night. Even some of the pyro stuff is set to time code with click tracks and everything. And so... There was just nobody helping me with any of this. Fortunately, of course, we were on tour with them for a while, on and off. So yeah, I heard the show, even through the walls in our dressing room afterwards. I would hear the show and hear the pyro go off, and it's like, okay, in Primal Scream, I know there's this big pyro explosion when they come into the last chorus, so there was no surprises by the giant explosions that would go off next to the drums, you know? But uh, I had to make a cheat sheet of everything. Even if it's a song I grew up listening to, it doesn't matter. You know, what if Vince doesn't sing and has the audience sing? That's a common thing he'd do. Or you just you might get disoriented by all the fire on stage. There's a lot of distractions. Make a cheat sheet no matter what. And just pay attention to that music stand, especially the first night. Don't worry about putting on a show. And I just had to figure things out. Like, the, the whole band would get the click. And I, I determined that because at the end of Nikki Sixx's speech... They would go into Anarchy in the UK. That was their cover of the Sex Pistols tune, you know? And the band would just go into it, just boom, they'd start the song, and there was no count-off. It wasn't Tommy counting off on the hi-hat. So that made me say, oh, they're all getting the count-off. They have to be. And he would start the song right after Nikki would say, you know, hit it, Tommy, and boom, they'd start. I'd figure, wow, that's got to be a quick count-off. Well, I guessed right (laughs) that night (laughs) of the... It was such a chance, right? It's like, yeah, I could have been wrong. I screwed up one thing, one count off where they were coming back into smoking in the Boys Room. The song would stop, and Vince would do this vocal thing, and then the song would finish. It was mashed up with that Gary Glitter tune, Rock and Roll Part 2, and I just messed up coming back into that, but something hopefully most people didn't even notice. But we didn't have any train wrecks that night, but... You know, the click slows down in wire for the breakdown. I just noticed that from hearing the show. Like, oh, yeah, they slow way down there. So I had to just be ready for the click to do this full-on retard at that point and then pick back up for the outro chorus, a guesswork, you know. But
0: um, it, it was a pretty crazy roller coaster ride. Now, the Hollywood Vampires you mentioned, Were you? how did you get involved with that? Because of Alice or what happened with that?
1: Oh, definitely because of Alice, yeah. Uh, Johnny Depp started sitting in with us back as far back as 2011 when we were in London. We had almost a week off because Alice was going to film his part in the movie Dark Shadows, which was the Johnny Depp movie that Tim Burton had directed. So it was being filmed in London. The timing worked out well with the tour. And we booked a little last-minute surprise gig at the 100 Club in London. Alice gig towards the end of that week and then we got word that day that Johnny's gonna come down and play a couple songs with us and he showed up at Soundcheck did I'm 18 and School's Out did it at the show that night it got to be a little viral video thing and then Johnny would have things where he'd play with us every now and then. The next year was the Dark Shadows premiere in Hollywood, so we played at that as a big surprise thing, and Johnny joined us, and then Joe Perry came out, and people were surprised, joined us, and then Steven Tyler joined us, and a lot of crazy moments like that. But then somebody had an idea, like, this could be an actual thing with Johnny, Joe, and Alice, and there was a covers record, that is Hollywood Vampires, mostly covers. I'm on about almost half of that record. There's some guest drummers like Dave Grohl and Zach Starkey. But then there was going to be a tour. Matt Sorum ended up doing that first tour in 2016. And then for 2018, I got brought into it. And we did a couple months in Europe last year. There's a new record coming out. I played on the whole thing. That record should be out. I'm hearing June. I don't have an exact release date yet, but it, it came about pretty organically. You know, I was, I was in the fold and Tommy Hendrickson became kind of the musical director of the Vampires. And so he was definitely a factor in that. And it just started from doing some of these late night demo sessions at Johnny's house in Hollywood, demos for the new Vampires thing. And they were late night. I mean, like literally him and Joe are like vampires. They, they start working at one in the morning. <laughs>
0: So the Alice tour is come, when does the tour start for you now with Alice? Well, it's, yeah, there's both gigs happening this year,
1: mostly Alice, but we have a, our first show of the year is May 4th in Mexico City. It's a big festival. Uh, we're headlining one night, Kiss is headlining the other night, and a bunch of other great bands on the, on the bill. So we have that one show, but then... Uh, We go right into rehearsals for the Hollywood Vampires. We come right back to L.A., Alice, Tommy, and myself, and we go into rehearsals with the Vampires because we have seven shows with that in May, mostly on the West Coast here. And then the Alice gig picks up in early July where we'll do uh, a couple weeks of headlining shows, and that'll be a new production. So we're going to spend at least a week putting together a whole new thing, so, we're going to do a couple of weeks of headlining shows, and then we'll join up and we'll do this month-long trek where we got uh, Bill
0: with Alice. It'll be us and Hailstorm. Okay, yeah, that, be cool. that's the show I'm going to see you guys at the BB&T in uh, Camden.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, I know that place. Sure.
0: So, do you still do Soundcheck Live? Sure. Yeah, that's a monthly thing in
1: L.A. It's the residency. It used to be weekly. Which is crazy to think about that, but we love doing it. I say crazy because every week would be a whole new list of songs and guests to back up. But through doing that gig and doing the year and a half on and off of weekly gigs, yeah, I'd miss it a lot because I'd be on tour, but doing that every week, I got even better at the method of charting songs out and adapting and getting up to speed quick when there's just a sound check rehearsal or sometimes no rehearsal. That was a great education plus learning all these songs every song you learn you're you're getting better so yeah i still do it it's monthly now so of course i've missed some of them but yeah we've had some good ones some really great nights with some great guests
0: well you know i want
1: to go it's lucky Stick in hollywood yeah lucky I, I... Is a really nice upscale bowling
0: venue with a nice stage and great sound system that's the one thing I miss about LA because I lived there so long. Is you if you if you go to that or then there was the Ultimate Jam, there's whatever. You could always sure. go somewhere and see music. Like my friend Troy Patrick Farrell played for Gilby. I would see him at Lucky Strike. You can't do oh, that. Sure. You can't do that. Like in Philly, even though we have a lot of great acts come through. That's one thing cool about LA. Guys would just show up. I know you probably go to the Baked Potato. You know, there's all just different things that. People just show up, which is so cool, and a lot of people don't take advantage of it in LA. And it's really no, lame no. because there's a great there's so many great musicians you can see. They they don't. And I, I look at you know, the students
1: that are at MI now, it's like, look, you live right by the baked potato. You need to be going there all the time. I mean, I was I've been going to the baked potato since I was sixteen. And back then, like Vinnie Coleuda was playing there all the time. I would go watch him from 10 feet away, you know, and I'd watch, well, Greg Bissonnette, Dave Garibaldi, all the cats. And that was school, absolutely. And I'll play there once in a while now. It's been a while just because of the busy schedule, but that's always a great place to play. That's getting thrown into the more
0: improvisational music but it's it's always been great to have that there well i want to thank you for coming on uh people check out uh glenn's website it's glenn g-l-e-n sobel s-o-b-e-l dot com he has it's a great site he has his gear has everything on it uh twitter it what's that it definitely
1: it definitely needs to be updated
0: yeah well it's but it looks good and, and now you twitter do you tweet a lot i know you're at glenn sobel in there are you do you use the twitter yeah, it's it's uh, connected with the whole Facebook and everything. Sure. Now I saw also you were going live on Facebook. Uh, is that something you're going to do every week, or was that just something? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's live on YouTube every week. Yeah, I put up
1: the link on Facebook for that. But yeah, the live the live stream on Sunday. Uh, I guess I've ended up calling it Sobel Sunday. But yeah, I've done that five weeks in a row now. That's been great. That's, you know, it's it doesn't cost anything. It's just people getting online from all over the world, asking questions. I, I do have a little drum set behind me, but most of the time is spent talking, answering questions about the music biz. I try to call it like an unfiltered view of my experiences in the biz, and there might be specific drum questions, there might be specific music Business questions
0: about behind-the-scenes tour, recording, whatever. But, yeah, it's been great. That's been Sundays
1: at noon Pacific Standard Time.
0: Okay, so people, check them out. Just Google Glenn Civil. Go look at his drum solos. The guy's a beast. And uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 720 episodes there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And I'll get back to you and then, you know, suggest who you want to see. You know, I've been a lot musician-heavy lately, but I'll get back to the actors and the TV writers And also follow me on uh, at Cooper Talk on Twitter. So you guys, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hippie as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.